Hello, and welcome to the Sustainable Living Show here on WMNF Tampa 88.5. And we are so excited to have you. Every Monday at 11, we bring you a conversation with local experts on sustainable issues. Today's guest is Paul Evans. He is a science writer and outreach coordinator for the University of Florida's Croc Docs research team. And it's not a shoe, (laughs) y'all. Your hosts today are myself, Kenny Coogan, and the wonderful Annie Ellis. Hey, Kenny. Hello, Annie. And uh, in the studio today is Mr. DT. And we are so excited that everyone is here. And we encourage you to stay tuned as we promote a balance of people, profit, and planet. The Croc Docs are a team of biologists working to improve the understanding of herpetofauna (laughs) in South Florida. Divided up so we could read it. (laughs) So they look at uh, reptiles and amphibians in South Florida, the Caribbean, and endangered mammals in Central America. Paul aims to bridge knowledge gaps existing in the conservation field through wildlife education, scientific research, and public engagement. Thank you, Paul, for joining us. So, Paul, we're really happy that you're here. Are you there? I am. Yay. Perfect. Good, 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 good. Well, we were wondering uh, lots of things, and uh, one of our first things that we were talk, uh, were thinking about were, where uh, are the croc docks based out of? So we are down near Fort Lauderdale, um, but our research takes us all over South Florida. So we will do work about almost as north as St. Lucie, mm-hmm. all the way down to Naples, and then all through Florida Bay and the Florida Keys. Oh, okay. So you're just all over the place. Anywhere they all are. All over. Anywhere they are, you <laughs> yeah. are. Huh? Yeah, basically. So uh, do you do most of it in one specific area? Um, depends on the species. So oh, for okay. a lot of our alligator work, they are going to be taking place in the greater Everglades area. Mm-hmm. So this is a bunch of water conservation areas that are up and down um, kind of the urban sprawl of Fort Lauderdale down to Miami, as well as all the way through um, Everglades National Park. American crocodile research takes place all through Biscayne Bay, Florida Bay, Cape Sable, and the Florida Keys. And then a lot of our invasive work with various uh, herpetofauna is going to be all throughout that whole region of uh, South Florida because, uh, unfortunately, a lot of these animals are just about everywhere down here. Uh, Well, I don't know if that's unfortunate. (laughs) I kind of like it, the idea that we have them, actually, myself. How how many crocodiles are there? Yeah. So croc docs, um, currently we have about 18 of us, um, but we have been an organization doing research with crocodilians here in South Florida since the late 1970s. So uh, we have a large list of alumni um, and a, a really, really cool brotherhood that's been built. Very cool. So, uh, so I was wondering about, uh, let's see, well, how are they doing? I mean, you know, we have we, other states that has the reptile and amphibian diversity, I would imagine, uh, but then how are we doing uh, in populations during, uh, in Florida? Are they doing well? So, or? a lot of our crocodilians are doing a lot better than they were about 30, 40 years ago. Okay. During parts of the 60s, 70s, 
This is when uh, American alligators in the state, American crocodiles in the state, all were very close to um, regional extinction. They were listed as endangered, uh, critically endangered for American crocodiles. And now both populations, uh, American alligators have made it still still protected species, but they have made it way far back uh, into, I think, where if they're not even listed anymore. Or if they are, they're just listed as vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And then American crocs are only listed as threatened now on the in, uh, Endangered Species Act. Um, but all of them are much better than they used to be. This is kind of the most northern range for American crocodiles. Um, so they will go all throughout the Caribbean, the Gulf of Mexico, all through down to parts of, I believe, Ecuador. Um, but all throughout kind of that middle uh, Mesoamerica region. So up here is really where um, they're already pushed naturally just due to the elements of being so far north. Um, but they're, they've all done a lot better, uh, specifically in Cape Sable is where we've really had a big boost in crocodiles uh, in the last 20 years. And we're considering, and they are native, so we should yes. be happy for that. A couple of weeks yeah. ago, we had a listener uh, call in or text in, and they were concerned that the, that the crocodiles are pushing the alligators out of like some uh, niches or something. Yeah, I was is wondering that, about is that, that too. Our, is that a real concern or is that normal? A lot of that's going to be normal. So kind of one of the bigger, uh, obviously there's a lot of genetic differences between alligators and crocodiles, but one of the bigger um, differences is that the American crocodile does live mostly in a marine habitat. Uh, a lot of this comes to the development of their salt glands, uh, which is not something that a lot of other crocodilian species, especially not alligators, have, at least not the, the same capability of. Um, so really, the main area you're going to ever see American crocs and gators kind of come into each other is those estuary areas where you get more brackish water. So a lot of that is going to be an environmental divide where crocodiles are going to have kind of the leg up in a marine habitat, um, whereas in the swamps, you're definitely not going to find too many crocodiles trying to move through there. So you're saying that, which I did not know this till just now, you're saying that the crocodiles need more salt, so they're in the brackish, whereas the alligators do not, so they're in the the fresher water areas. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so uh, American crocodiles don't necessarily need the salt as much as, as they have evolved to live in those areas. Oh, because I they see. definitely still need fresh water. That's still something that's very important for them, um, especially when it actually comes to young crocodiles. So that may be why uh, uh, that's one of the problems that's popped up in recent years is uh, with loss of habitat for American crocodiles, sometimes they get pushed into areas where it's really hard to find any fresh water. And, you know, sometimes they just need like a little puddle from the rainy season. And that's what the little um, hatchlings need. And that's because it takes almost about two weeks for a uh, hatchling crocodile to actually develop that salt gland. That's then going to allow them to really do well in those marine environments but alligators don't have that so that's kind of more it is a inability by american alligators to really uh succeed long term in a marine habitat uh whereas that is the place once they are old enough american crocodiles are definitely built to succeed so you're saying that uh it's the lack of habitat that's causing the problems for them 
Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lack of habitat, a lot of, you know, um, a lot of probably their historic homeland here in Florida is, you know, beautiful beachfront property. And, th- and this oh, is for okay. a lot of animals. This isn't just for, you know, American crocodiles. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely they are a resilient creature and they've really been able to bounce back um, pretty significantly in the last, uh, you know, 20, 30 years. Um, but there definitely is still a lot of work in understanding the uh, impacts and management that is needed to succeed. Can you tell us what the American alligator ranges in addition to the state of Florida? Sure. So naturally, American alligators will go up into about the Carolinas is their natural northern portion. Um, And then that will kind of move on through parts of Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and then into Louisiana and the Mississippi. And then oh, after that is where it kind of starts to become what is what is uh, native range and what has been possibly human influence range. Um, there definitely are alligators in parts of East Texas. There have been some found in you know parts of Arkansas. You can get them over in Missouri and possibly Oklahoma. But a lot of this is still you know up for up for debate on what their true native range is, but for the most part, it is going to be the southeastern uh, United States. That's interesting. Did So I, I think you said it was like 40 or 50 years ago, they weren't doing as well as they are today. Was it because we've improved their environment, or is it more that there's people <laughs> having alligator farms and the need for you know hunting, or, or are they releasing baby alligators everywhere? Like, why... Why is it a success story? I think it's mostly a success story because there are there are there are two things in place now. There are now protections. There are now laws really helping a lot of native populations, as well as like you said, there are a lot of successful um, you know type of farming programs, type of breeding programs, et cetera, et cetera that has taken some of that pressure off of native populations. So a lot of native populations are able to succeed where they have the environment to succeed. So it's not the hunting then, the, the lack of the hunting? Um, yes and no. It's one of those That's things now where it's just, it's restricted. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's not necessarily um, that there's no pressures from that, but it's more so that there's a lot more wildlife management about hunting where we understand the science, we understand a lot more of kind of the community impacts from an ecology standpoint Mm -hmm. of what size animals, what percentage of different size classes of animals can you take out? And we know there's going to be more of a minimal impact. Very good. So I just want to let y'all know that I'm Annie Ellis, and you're listening to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa 88.5. Today's guest is Paul Evans. He's a science writer and outreach coordinator for the University of Florida's Croc Docs research team. If you want to be part of this conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663, text us at 813-433-0885, or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org and we will read it on the air. All right, Paul, we got a couple of uh, messages. One is from JB. They ask, um, they want us to ask Paul, if you have any ideas why there are more crocodile sightings down through the Keys 
even spotted in Key West. Does it have to do with the uh, Burmese Python issue or JB is just noticing that this is like a new occurrence and that they grew up um, on the keys. So Paul, do you have there, insight on that? Yeah, so um, the Key West specifically is an interesting um, area because we, we've done surveys over the last couple of years and very seldomly do we actually get a successful nest from American Crocs down there. Um, but they definitely live all throughout the Keys down there. Um, they don't have too many known uh, impacts or relations with Burmese pythons currently. That occurs a lot more up in Everglades National Park, specifically more with alligators and native mammals. Um, but for the most part, this is just the population coming back to the areas they've always been in. Uh, now they just have more of a larger population in this area of Florida where they're able to return to all different habitats that they that they would have uh, inhabited naturally. Do you think somebody's eating those eggs? Uh, from uh, uh, from American crocodiles? Yeah, down in the Keys. Definitely, definitely. There are some native species. There are also obviously non-native species, whether it's rats or different types of iguanas that would probably eat eggs. But most of the failed nests that happen is because of flooding. It's because oh, of tidal. Okay. Yeah, a lot of the failed nest is more just the fact that it gets too saturated, whether you know it's rainy season, a hurricane comes through, anything with that stuff, that, that's usually actually when a nest truly fails. That makes sense. We have another message, and they ask, what about the gators living in the Hillsborough River, and how far south of the river do they travel? That is out of the range where we do research, um, so I don't have specifics on that, but I, I did grow up in parts of Tampa, so I, I do know that there's quite a bit of alligators moving through that area. I could not tell you how far, Um south they go through Hillsborough River, but I would assume there's not a whole lot of American crocodile activity up there at all. So for the most part, they probably would use it all the way until it makes it towards about the shore or uh, the coastline. And then after that point, it just isn't a habitat that suits them anymore. The few times that I, not the few times, but every time I've been to the Hillsborough River State Park, I've been able to see oh, yeah, many definitely. alligators. <laughs> And, I didn't know oh, yeah. that there was a difference. I gotta say, I didn't Between realize the alligator yeah, the and crocodiles. Crocodile, yeah. I mean, I knew the names, but I didn't understand <laughs> that they were from specific locations. I mean, so, that just is great. Yeah. So, Paul, we have um, another question related to that. But first, can you tell us how many crocodilian species there are? Ooh. In the world? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> you say, or, 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 or maybe just yeah. tell us the diversity. Well, <laughs> there are, I believe. It's somewhere in the upper 20s. Some of it's still debated because we have some species um, like the Western African Nile crocodile that may be different than the Nile crocodile. And this is the same for Nile monitors as well, that there's some genetics still going in there. But for the most part, it is around, I think, 27. Mm -hmm. um, and that includes two types of alligators, I believe it's six or seven types of caiman. So all caiman will be oh, in yeah. Central and South America. Alligators are in North America, and then they are in China, which is the Chinese alligator is. And then crocodiles will then occur all throughout um, northern part of Australia and Oceania, 
obviously where the saltwater crocodile is, and then in through all of Southeast Asia and then uh, Africa. So there are a lot more diversity. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. Um, there are many, many species. A lot of them do have a lot of similar niches, uh, ecologically speaking. But obviously, there's a variety of habitats here that they're, they're they're thriving in across the world. So we have quite a bit of alligators and American crocodiles in Florida, and we were just talking about the Hillsborough River, but. We have so many waterways and water bodies in Florida. Mm -hmm. What safety precautions do we need to do if we're swimming in these waterways or ponds and lakes? Where are, are we assuming that alligators are present pretty much in all water bodies? I, I would assume. Um, I would say if there are if there are safety regulations in that area that say don't swim, there's probably a reason why. <laughs> um, in areas where you can swim. Um, you know, keep your keep your head on a swivel. Uh, for the most part, truthfully, a lot of the real danger is going to come from animals that are habituated. So animals mm -hmm. that have kind of lost that initial shock or fear of humans, yeah. likely due to, you know, people feeding them or them just being able to go somewhere where they know people are and they're able to find food that's yeah. human related. So that's whether it's trash, fish scraps. That reminds me of something. Uh, you know, I see a lot of videos uh, of that situation where they're in populated areas and they're they're out there trying to wrangle these crocodiles. And I just, you know, it's like for fun. Kind well, of? no, not really for fun, but it's it's funny to me. But it's no, not. for fun, like are they like being like, oh, I'm so manly, I can grab this well, alligator. Well, part <laughs> of that is on it. I really do. But I, the last one I saw, this guy pushed in one of those big blue trash cans and got it, got the gator in there, and he flipped it up and put the lid down, mm. and everybody was very excited about. It. But I was like, man, that seems a little crazy. But it, but I was wondering. So when do we act? You know, when we have this situation, because I also saw a guy jump in the water and he he saved his dog. Mm -hmm. And he pulled, and he went underwater and got the the crocodile and, or the alligator, whatever it was. I'm not sure, and saved his dog. He never even dropped the cigar out of his mouth. It was amazing. <laughs> but I was wondering, when do we call authorities about this sort of thing instead of you know acting? I I think obviously you know if a loved one or someone is involved immediately yes. in a uh, attack or an incident, then do do what you have to do, obviously, in those situations. But in most in most cases, if no one is truly going to be injured or hurt, and it's just simply that, oh, there's an alligator at the lake, that's probably the alligator's home. So in most situations, I do believe that it's best just to let the animal do what it needs to do. Yeah. But obviously in certain situations where, you know, like it's coming up into, you know, a, a playground to maybe sun or things like that, that is when definitely um, getting, uh, you know, uh, FWC's nuisance crocodile, I'm sorry, nuisance alligator. And some of those things involve just to, you know, relocate the animal, get it away from uh, a habitat, obviously, that is not going to be serving it best ecologically. Um, but for the most part, and, and a lot of the times, there aren't a whole lot of these uh, rogue alligators. A lot of them are just hanging out in their normal home. So who would they call and how do they manage that? You know, is there a phone number or do they need to go online or is there something they can do? There should be a phone number for FWC's uh, nuisance alligator. I am not 
super familiar with that. Um, for things in our area, we have on occasion had people come up and talk to us, but mm -hmm. for the most part, we work a lot more with uh, removing invasives and non-natives. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the natives, we we want them to kind of stay where they're at. Um, but I know FWC does have a program for that. And speaking of which, we just got an email from David, and he says, Hi, guys, I was curious if Paul could speak about St. Augustine Alligator Farm. Instead of killing nuisance alligators, could they be sent there to retire or like to Gatorland and uh, Kissimmee? So I know zoos and zoological facilities have limited space, but mm -hmm. are we encountering a lot of really large nuisance alligators or are they more like a two-foot alligator that people don't want in their yard? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because, because the real, the backing of that question is I've seen lots of videos of like a 15-foot alligator walking on a golf course. Exactly. Right, right. that's always yeah. a popular yeah. meme that's shared. So is that actually happening frequently? Uh, truthfully, at least in uh, South Florida or stuff, um, where I where I'm at, you're not getting a lot of those large animals, anyways. Um, as you move more into North Florida and like South Georgia and Louisiana, that's really where you're going to see a lot more of those 15 foot animals, anyways. Um, so a lot of that also still depends a bit with uh, you know, ge ge sorry, <laughs> with where they're geographically located. But definitely places like um, you know the alligator farm. Gatorland, I believe there's also the Everglades Alligator Farm. A lot of those situations definitely can take some of those animals. Um, obviously, it is going to come down to, you know, the ability to actually transport and then house the animal in those situations. Um, a lot of the times, I do know they also do try to just relocate animals into things like state parks or other uh, wildlife managed areas. But it is situational. Um, I'm not completely averse on all of that um, because we we've helped out in some of those situations but that's not our bread and butter but definitely those uh types of institutes really could and, and and do help a lot with those situations so you were saying that uh uh the large uh gator animals are more in the uh you know, Mississippi, Louisiana, and so on like that, Georgia maybe. But uh, I was wondering why are they so much larger there? Is that just their better life area? Or what is that? Or do they just have a, nobody's killing them as much? Or, you know, how come they can get so big? I'm just wondering about that in those locations. So there, yeah, so there are two kind of uh, things to keep in mind with that is one, like how this is the, where in South Florida, this is kind of the uppermost range for American crocodiles. So they're not probably getting quite as big as they would in the middle of their range. Mm -hmm. It's same for American alligators where this is the lowest point of their range. Okay. So this is where the habitat is a bit more um, still made for them, but definitely isn't necessarily going to offer like the most ideal uh, ingredients all I the see. time. So it's not the optimum living area. So they just, just don't thrive as well. I get it. Yeah. Okay. And then part of it is part of the other reason why they're not thriving as much is going to be because of a lot of the canals and the redirection of the hydrology throughout the Everglades mm -hmm. or the greater Everglades region. So that's down from um, Lake Okeechobee all the way through various different um you know, water tables, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of that is and has been um, 
in improvement. There's a giant fund called the Recover Project that's backed by Congress um, that is really moving to restore the Everglades, to move a lot of the hydrology back to where it's supposed to be. Um, that definitely, that's one of the reasons why we study American alligators is because they are an ecological indicator. So we can actually use the improvement of health of individual animals in different habitats to kind of start to see how the habitat is becoming more naturalized traditionally to what it would have been, you know, 50, 60 years ago. All right. In just a minute, I want to ask you more about those monitoring projects. But first, I want to remind listeners that this is the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa 88.5. Today's guest is Paul Evans. He is a science writer and outreach coordinator for UF's Croc Docs research team. If you want to be part of the conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org and we will read it on air. So part of the CrocDocs, um, you're doing a lot of monitoring projects. So can you tell us how you measure the crocodilians and how you monitor them and how you GPS track them? And You mean actually go out there yeah, and do what, it? Yeah, like what are they actually doing? It's physical work? Yeah, so we, we'll go out there and we will um, catch individuals and then we will take a bunch of different morphological measurements um, so this will be things like the length of their head. This will be SVL, which is snout to vent length. So that's kind of going from their uh, tip of their nose all the way to right where their reproduction uh, genitalia area is. And then we will do the full length, which includes the tail. Um, the, reason, the reason why we kind of stop around SVL is because sometimes these animals don't have the full length of their tail. Why? But why? Um, just life, oh. you know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes animals when they're small, um, you know, will be attacked or eaten by something, uh, or attempted to be eaten by something. So then they don't have the full length of their tail. Uh, it doesn't for the most part, uh, depending on, you know, if they just lost like five or six inches off the end, it's not a huge ordeal to them. Um, you know, in terms of oh. their motor functions, but it definitely is something that, uh, you know, we want to keep an eye out because it does mean that that animal likely is bigger than the measurements we have oh, if we right. were dealing with ideal situations. So we will do that measurement for both American Crocs and American Gators. Uh, in the past, we have done blood to kind of start to also look at some of their health with that. Um, we individually hit tag each animal. Um, so that means when we are able to catch an animal again, we're able to kind of see when we caught it last. So then we're able to kind of look at growth, look at possibly habitat movement. If it's in a completely other side of the state, you know, it brings up interesting standpoints of the distribution for these animals as the hydrology kind of changes and fluctuates. Um, so that's a lot of what we do for monitoring specifically with the, uh, bodily health of these animals. Um, and then after that, it turns into a lot of statistics because from those measurements, there are a bunch of uh, factors we can look at. So whether it's body condition index, so looking at how healthy are these animals going through, you know, how much uh, extra weight, how much mass, et cetera, et cetera, do they have on them? 
relative to what is their size. So when I was excited when you talked about the tail getting cut, I mean, that's hard, it's horrible <laughs> to be excited about that. But you know what made me think about it was that the lizards, the uh, anoles, uh, they grow back their tail when mm-hmm. it's uh, fallen off. And I just thought that they did too, but apparently <laughs> not. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, like, they're all part of uh, reptalia. But um, crocodilians are more closely related to, like, the archosaurs when we go, like, way back around. Okay. Um, so there are going to be some differences, as well as the fact that, like, you know, some crocodilians, their tails can be 12 feet long. They're never going to, you know, a lot of that has too much muscle and motor function for their day-to-day. Uh, but they definitely will keep growing that tail. So even if parts of it does happen to get bit off or something when they're younger, their tail's still going to grow as the animal grows. Obviously, it's just not going to reach that full uh, length that it would have if it, it hadn't ever had that injury. So their spinal cord goes all the way down to the tip? Uh, I don't believe it goes all the way down to the tip. I do believe they have muscle towards the very, very end, but it goes pretty close. They'll have the entire tail. Um, yeah. Interesting. When you are monitoring alligators, do you notice a population decline after major storms like hurricanes? Um, not necessarily declines. We'll see shifts. So a lot of the times, you know, whether it's through, uh, you know, human-controlled hydrology, so where we dump water through different canal systems or whatnot, versus um, just hurricanes, when water is increased in areas, especially in in swampy habitats, you're probably actually going to see more animals. Um, So definitely... Like after the hurricane, they're finding a new... Yeah, you'll see them start to shift. So I'm sure in some areas, specifically right along probably Naples and parts of that Gulf Coast. I'm sure a lot of animals did remove themselves for a for a period of time. Um, but definitely as more water comes through, it just gives them more habitat and more options to distribute through. Um, so you'll probably see a lot more movement and uh, uh, changes in certain areas as that water flow increases. All right, Paul, we got a couple of messages. One is from a friend. He uh, kills invasive plant species. He mitigates invasive plant species, so he's going to like a lot of waterways. And he said that mm-hmm. after Hurricane Ian, he was working in South Tampa, like Brandon, Bradenton mm-hmm. area, and he takes care of like this area that's a retention pond, but they have um, cement walls. And he said after Ian, him and his team found about twenty or thirty dead alligators oh. that he thinks were oh, like wow. that were like hit up against the the cement wall oh. hit up against the cement oh, wall wow. and he thinks like also some of them might have drowned so they yeah so i'll leave it at that but um that's sad that's very sad so i was just wondering if that's a common occurrence yeah but do it, they go i was just wondering it too like do they, they go they in seem, holes they you seem know? resilient <laughs> but, but do they like hide yeah. in caves or you know what do they do in situations like that i guess well I, in in the habitats we deal with it is you know, it's the greater Everglades region. So it's a bunch of marshlands, it's swamplands that flood seasonally. So a lot of it, they'd be able to kind of just hunker down in parts of the muck. Um, mm-hmm. There are alligator holes. They'll have kind of various little tunnels too underneath some of these muddy areas to get them to other parts of the the uh, wetland. 
So I definitely in more human made environments, canals, et cetera, stuff like that, there are going to be other complications that are going to, are going to pop up. So it kind of just depends, you know, when it's a retention pond and for the most part, all of it is cement. Um, you are going to have some problems where they're not going to be able to really have the same little functions that they would like, you yeah. know, it's gonna be a lot harder for them to build alligator holes no or stuff spot. like that. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, unfortunately that is um, something that, that can happen. Uh, and it's, I'm sure it was a very sad thing to see. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that is kind of one of the, uh, Negatives of having, uh, you know, as man-made much structures. Yeah. yeah, as much man-made structures as we do. So, um, speaking of which, we have a string of emails, and they all want to know about humans and alligator relationships. The first one is from Bubba. He asks, "Do wildlife underpasses like those seen on Alligator Alley and I four work well for gators?" Do, are they crossing the road uh, corridor safely? Are they utilizing them? If Bubba was a crocodile, he would spend most of his time in the underpasses eating tasty deer. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, Paul. Pa- pa- deer snacks. <laughs> deer snacks. So, Paul, yes. are people, not people, not people, but are animals <laughs> using those corridors, specifically crocodilians? Yeah, that's good. A lot, a lot of, um, I would say, alligators definitely use pathways like that you're also going to get deer and many other animals that are larger size are going to use those corridors a lot of those corridors have been proven all over um, the world i did schooling over in europe where they've started to implement some of those specifically for uh, introducing more large predators so things like lynx uh some wolf populations etc too like a lot of these have been really uh, a helpful thing oh yeah to include as we you know continue to understand infrastructure and you know the impacts of we'll say uh of old modernization when it comes to um you know construction and implementing kind of with the thought process of wildlife definitely has had some really positive yeah, impacts removing one species is a terrible situation in the chain and that brings us to our next text message they would like uh, Paul, to talk a little bit about how humans have adversely affected these animals and how long the <laughs> alligators have lived in this region. And then we have another message. What um, conservation efforts are going on for crocodilians? Like, are, are we doing pretty good with legislature, uh, hunting, breeding land, things like that? So can, yeah. can you talk about the, so, not just the yeah. negatives of humans because yeah. we, we yeah. don't want to beat up we humans. Do both. <laughs> That's right. Well, yeah. you know, we are here, so we have to we, live yeah. together. We have to learn live. to live together. We have to balance so people profit. Humans, there it is. <laughs> Go ahead. We we kind of have a have a, a tricky relationship, like you guys said, because truthfully, you know, all the conservation stuff that is done for any species all over the world. It is because humans decided to care and put in the effort to help and make a difference. Um, but a lot of the problems that we, we end up solving were also a lot of the times human caused. Mm-hmm. So obviously down here in South Florida, we deal a lot with invasive species, um, which are going to continue to be a problem. Um, so we have the Argentine black and white tegu, 
which has um, been recorded several times raiding alligator nests and eating them, mm-hmm. um, which is really bad for multiple reasons. One, because this is a type of lizard that um, can live almost 20 years. So, you know, there, there are very few dog species that can live nearly close to that length. And this type of four or five foot lizard is getting up to 15, 20 years, mm. as well as they're able to brumate. So they're able to actually go through a type of hibernation. Um, so they can actually live in much colder climates oh than a lot of goodness. our invasive species. Yeah. So that's, that's obviously an impact if they're already able to have known, um, kind of predatory instincts towards alligator nests here just in South Florida, you know, throughout the southeastern United States, if they were to kind of distribute through, um, obviously that would become a bigger problem for this whole region, as well as um, a lot of alligator nests usually aren't just alligators. So numerous turtle species will actually lay their eggs in an alligator nest. So as the a, mama to protect them? Is that why? Yep. Oh, wow. So yep. smart. So, there, so there's stuff like that. Because obviously, you know, um, a mother alligator is going to do her best job, but she's not going to be there all the time. There are other functions, as well as she may not always recognize some of these invasive or non-native animals as oh. something to be wary of if they've never seen it before. Yeah. So there are definitely things like that that we have to kind of uh, mitigate now as conservationists, as researchers, because we don't just have hydrology problems, we now have introduced species that are also causing problems. Um, But a lot of this does turn into a lot of good conservation work, um, not just here in Florida, but throughout the world. Um, There are numerous large events and organizations that help raise money. Um, One of them that we work a lot with is called CrocFest, it actually just happened this past weekend up in St. Augustine. Um, and was it at the alligator to, farm? It was at the alligator farm. Oh, perfect. <laughs> so you're familiar um, with that facility. I'm very familiar. <laughs> it was just there. Um, so they they are they have been able to raise, I think, over $800,000 over the last 12 years for numerous types of crocodilian research all over the world. Um, which is really awesome. And then uh, here at UF, we have the Rath Crespo Conservation Fund where we really try to also help out um, new young conservationists, specifically, typically in um, developing countries or possibly uh, uh, understudied crocodilian populations just to continue to give opportunities to populations of these really, really incredible animals, not just in Florida, but throughout the world to have a a better chance at conservation. Can you repeat that uh, that last one, the last organizations, please? Yes, it's uh, RAF Crespo uh, Conservation Fund. It's through UF. Um, It's uh, in uh, kind of memorial for one of our old CrocDoc alumni. Mm-hmm. Very good. We just got another uh, email from Jean, and they said that the FWC report wildlife abuse is a hotline where you can call. Oh, it's like okay. an emergency alert to report wildlife abuse, such as putting an alligator in a garbage can. Thank you. When activity that is dangerous to wildlife is seen, the safest thing to do is call that number to protect the people and the animals from um, the individual carrying out that activity. So yes. I just forwarded that email to Miss Annie Ellis. So when we do our show notes, we're going to include that phone number into awesome. um, that as yeah, well as that's great. a bunch of other stuff that's uh, 
Paul Ben talking about. It will make links to things too, so it's a little bit easier. Um, we, we have another text message, and I think this is following up. Um, can you, they asked this earlier, Paul, how, how long have alligators and crocodiles been around? Oh, on the yes, Earth? I'm sorry. Um, in the sense that we know from, like, we'll say modern crocodilians and alligators, you're still going back millions of years, millions of years. As a whole family group, there are giant crocodilians throughout, you know, prehistory. There is Sarcosuchus, Dinosuchus that were back during um, uh, the Cretaceous period. So these are animals that grew large enough to eat dinosaurs. Wow. Um, so <laughs> some of them were found, I believe, what is now modern day Texas. Back where there used to be a giant um, middle North American ocean. You have... Uh, various species back when uh, Titanoboa existed in parts of the Amazonian region, uh, today at least, um, that were large animals. We've had crocodilians throughout time that weren't just uh, uh, aquatic. There were some uh, immediately after the loss of the dinosaurs, so after the KT event, when you kind of had that rush ecologically and evolutionarily to have all these different animals try to fill niches, we had, you know, giant birds, but we also had hooved crocodiles that ran and hunted almost like how a wolf or a lion would. Wow. So crocodilians have been here for millions upon millions of years, and a lot of our modern species go back quite a few, uh, like three to four, if not more million years as a species. I just, about a week ago, I just finished a 14-hour audio book called The Rise and Fall of Dinosaurs. I almost cried at the oh. end. I almost cried at the end. Yeah. Really? Yeah. But they do talk about uh, several animals that are crocodilians and uh, how yeah. large they used to be. And now I want to talk about the opposite. On our Sustainable Living WMNF Facebook page for um, today's show, the event, our show. Um, there's a picture of Paul holding a bunch of little baby <laughs> alligators or crocodiles. Cute. So can you tell us if that's cute and if <laughs> if I see a nest, can I go and grab a bunch of babies? <laughs> so unfortunately, no, you, you cannot. Um, that is something we are lucky enough to do. Um, that is our summer. So our whole summer, those are American crocodiles. We go and we collect the babies from the nests. We give them an individual identification code. We take all their measurements. We uh, do nest checks. We'll check how many eggs did hatch, how many have not hatched. This is when we unfortunately also find the failed nests that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there's thousands upon thousands of babies that are hatched every single summer. Uh, and that's what we spend our summers doing and going out. Um, and they're really, they're really exceptional animals. Uh, they're surprisingly soft uh, when, especially when they're that small. They're far more smooth than I think a lot of people um, would think when they think of crocodilians. Yeah. Um, but no, there is a lot of permitting involved for what we are, what we are able to do. Um, but they definitely are an incredible species. And if you were to see a crock nest or something like that in your area, it would be really helpful to reach out to us, oh, yeah. um, especially in the Florida Keys, because we're always trying to find 
new nests. And one of the ways that what we do is through outreach is through kind of talking to people because there's a lot of private land in the Keys or a lot of people who have beautiful backyards where, you know, maybe a sea turtle went up or a uh, crack nest went up. And a lot of times we don't find out about that till much later. Um, so it would be always helpful to reach out, whether it be through um, our emails or through um, our phone number. Um, so all that stuff's very, very helpful just because we're always wanting to know where new nests are, where more possible, uh, you know, hatchlings may be so we can identify them and, and see how they're going to do. So speaking of the hatchlings, they have to mate before that happens. And so we were wondering about uh, what are the romantic alligator behaviors that they have, or even the crocodiles too. When, when you look at them, you don't really... They don't put lipstick on. You don't think romance. They're no. not screaming romance. <laughs> there's, but, no, there's no negligee involved in this little like, setup. So but with, what, what but with my degree in animal behavior, I do know they're romantic. Yes. So, yes. Uh, yeah. Can you tell Actually, us what's going on with them? <laughs> yeah, so right now is courting slash mating season for um, American crocodiles. Okay. So there will be... Uh, a little song and dance, if you will, for them. A lot of it is going to be, um, you know, various males um, kind of trying to entice other males away. Yeah, so they, so they do like a little fighting dance. Females. Yeah. yeah, they will also kind of have various kind of rubbing heads of one another. Mm. Um trying to entice the female. There may be some musky uh, scent spreading as well, which happens a lot with several animals, not just crocodilians. Um, Are are they doing that in the water or on land? um, It can be both. Um, Crocodilians tend to be, well, crocodiles tend to sometimes be more so doing some of this stuff on the beach or in more shores where obviously, yeah. (laughs) Scenting the beach. You know, the romance romance of the shore. (laughs) And then with alligators, they actually don't start courting or mating. It's almost about April. Mm. Um, And about mid-April is when that's going to start. And they, I'm sure people have kind of seen like a male alligator bellow. That was my next question. So that (laughs) that weird sound, that sound that they make. I always wondered, is that what their mating, is that their mating call? Or were they just trying to find lost kids? Or what was it? So it's not going to be for lost kids. Obviously, they they will be vocal. Um, Young alligators, young crocodiles, they will make that little sound. To try to get Fine try to mom. get mom or someone someone's attention, uh-huh. uh, we're far too used to that uh, sound. As whenever we are to collect babies, the chorus of that does begin. Um, but yeah, so bellowing can be for some mating as well as it can be territorial. So they may be doing it to kind of be like, "Hey, I'm the big male in this area." Like, okay, this is my territory. Stay, stay clear, yeah. you know. If you if you don't want to rumble. Um, so there definitely are, are, are things like that. But yeah, it, it is always kind of interesting to view some of these animals when they do have those softer sides when it comes to whether it's parenting or courtship and mating. Um, you know, it, it does happen. A lot of very human things do occur for all types of animals. Mm-hmm. That's funny. What um, other species do the cock docks work with regularly in Florida? So Burmese python, Argentine, black and white tegu, Nile monitor, 
uh, are going to be kind of the main non-native or invasive species that we do a lot of impacts with. Um, a lot of this is going to be because of the impacts we see with our native species. So Burmese pythons have a really large negative impact on our um, native mammal populations, as well as several uh, ground nesting or wading types of birds. Um, I believe 41 different types of species of birds have been found inside Burmese pythons' guts, um, as well as numerous types of mammals, um, especially throughout parts of like the upper keys. Uh, it's some ridiculous number like almost 70 or 80 percent of the Burmese of all Burmese pythons of any size found within the Key Largo area have had some type of Key Largo wood rat or a cotton mouse in their gut. Are cotton mice endangered too or just the wood rat? Um, so Key Largo wood rats are endangered as are uh, the Key Largo cotton mouse um, but obviously some of these beach mouse some of these other ones who are more regional you are going to have a lot more pressure because they have such a smaller habitat to begin with. Um, but, you know, numerous, numerous species that we have down here um, definitely are going to run into problems with something like a Burmese python because it's essentially, you know, a giant apex predator and we don't have necessarily uh, the correct ecology to combat a giant snake without a lot of help from humans. So I was wondering, since you were talking about that they're taking that particular type of uh, animal in, uh, is that interfering with the, the food that they, uh, the gators eat? And what do they eat? What do gators eat? Yeah. So gators can eat a lot of things. It can be deer. It can be birds. Um, it can be a bunch of fish, especially some smaller animals, fish, invertebrates there's a lot that they will eat a lot of it's going to depend some seasonally as well as just what is in their ecosystem obviously some swamplands you're not going to be able to find a deer but you could find you know giant heron you can find very large carp and other types of fish that are going to be really great resources for um, American alligators. So, Paul, we only have about four minutes left. We have one last uh, text message that I'll address, and then I have two more questions. The text okay. message reads, how do you think humans would feel to have their babies, quote, collected? So can you just uh, further <laughs> explain, are you, like, grabbing up all the baby alligators and keeping them in your bathtub, or are you just, what oh, are you doing? they <laughs> go back in about two minutes. It's a very quick process. We measure them, we weigh them, we mark them with their individual identification, and then they go right back to mom. It very all good. takes place in under five minutes. So, are you part uh, of, or are the croc docs part of the IUCN crocodilian we, group? Or uh, We are part of the, IC, the ICUN as well as the uh, crocodile specialist group. So those are okay. uh, parts that. We are members now. Very good. Yeah. So the International Union of Conservation of Nature, the IUCN, has 10,600 volunteers. Some yeah. of them do sloths, only sloths. Some of them only do crocodiles. Some of them do armadillos. <laughs> yes. And then in order to get an animal labeled as endangered, threatened, vulnerable, scientists, PhD doctors, veterinarians, they have to go out there and measure the animals. And that's, to document it, to be able to prove their point. Exactly. Yeah, so that's, yeah. so you're not just like playing with baby alligators. Yeah. No, that's no, this is all for the health. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, to make sure that we know, because, you know, unfortunately there are years like this past year where 
we had major hurricanes happen. We had tropical storms happen early on. And a lot of the, the normal nest population we had thought would do fairly well failed because, you know, the hydrology wasn't right. There were just problems. And it, it's part of nature. It's part of life. But it's things, you know, with weaker populations, if we're not able to understand it, you know, we can't help. Yes. Yeah. So we have about two minutes left. Um, I definitely, because we were told to ask you this from a, from a guest a week or two ago, can you tell us about, we only have two minutes though, about a, a parasite that's living in the Burmese python that's affecting other right. reptiles? Oh, the nematode? Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes I can. So um, we actually have done some research with that as well. One of our um, research ecologist here that's what she did her whole phd on so things like that um it's something that is the asia asiatic uh snake nematode and it basically just fills up snakes and causes a lot of harm inside them but it, it's actually not helping us with the burmese python it's hurting a lot of native species so it's been found in uh, cotton mouths garter snakes things that you can find almost in various uh almost every state, like garter snakes, racers, stuff like that, very common types of species that's been found in. So it really could have a large impact. And so far, I believe it's made it as far north as Orlando. Uh. Um, but it's really awful because it hasn't shown to have too much of a uh, non-impact to native snakes. It seems to be grasping pretty easily onto a lot of our native species. So if they're, uh, if they're going, if that uh, parasite goes into the tegu, and you said that the tegu uh, can go into cold areas, that can even move out to Mississippi, Louisiana, and the like. Yeah, correct? well, yes. It's probably not likely it would do as well in lizards because okay. there are some difference biologically, but racers, different um Garter snakes, they can live anywhere from here up to Washington. So we're talking about the continental United States. A lot of those states have an impact that if it were to continue to distribute and continue to spread, could have a big impact. Thank you so much, Thank Paul Thank you so Evans. much. It was very interesting. It was great. So Paul Evans is a science writer and outreach coordinator for the University of Florida's Croc Docs research team. And we thoroughly appreciate your Advice Taking this time, we appreciate your time. Yes. Thank you, Paul. If you Thank enjoyed you this so show and our weekly content, please go to WMNF.org, donating through the tip jar and directing your donation to the Sustainable Living Show. Okay, stay tuned. In the next hour, you will hear WMNF's Tampa's Monday Music with Flea. If you want to hear more public interest programming, switch over to WMNF's HD3 channel, the source, and listen to today's Tom Hartman Show Live. Make sure to tune in next Monday morning at 11 for the next Sustainable Living Show. We'll have Dr. Bob Lynn talking about herbal studies, medicinal plants, and acupuncture. He's the best. I just love him. Follow our Facebook page, Sustainable Living at WMNF to stay in the loop. And also listen to our past shows. Just go to Listen On Demand at WMNF.org. I'm Annie Ellis. And I'm Kenny Coogan. Remember, if you're looking for someone to save the world, look in the mirror. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>